where did I go wrong? At what point should I have done something differently? And why didn't I do it? And you spend so long stirring in your own shit that it just drives you and everybody else mad. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. To join me, go to myworstinvestmentever.com and sign up for the free weekly Become a Better Investor newsletter where I share how to reduce risk and create, grow, and protect your wealth. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Academy, and I'm here with featured guest, Stephen Wilkinson. Stephen, are you ready to join the mission? Absolutely. Take it away. <laughs> Let me introduce you to the audience. Sir Stephen Wilkinson is the founder and CEO of Good and Prosper and has been involved in business finance and investment for the best part of 30 years, having started working for Merrill Lynch Investment Bank in Munich, Germany in 1987 at the tender age of 24. Good and Prosper is an advisory and investment company through which Stephen acts as a thinking partner for business leaders and owners, supporting them as a generalist business expert across the fields of finance, leadership, and culture. Good and Prosper is also a knowledge platform teaching finance to entrepreneurs with a focus on small and medium-sized businesses, primarily in the English-speaking world. Stephen founded the publishing business Pitchfork Press and publishes a weekly essay, Pitchfork Papers, via Substack to a rapidly growing and diverse international audience. Oh, that's a lot of stuff, Stephen. Take a minute and tell us the unique value you are bringing to this wonderful world. Good job I knew that that question was coming because it gave me a chance to think about it. <laughs> I think that it's a blend of a natural affinity I have for stories and narratives and an ability to relate to people, particularly business people, individually in their context and at the same time bring in a skill that I had to learn and that was difficult for me to learn at the beginning but I think I've, I've also mastered the craft of understanding and interpreting financial statements through the concept of numbers as a language so I, I I'm a good linguist mm. I was not a natural I was not naturally oriented towards numbers. Words were always more my home. But at an early age, working for Merrill in 1980s, when I had to get numerate as well as literate, I had to get numerate. And the idea of, of numbers being a language, I don't know where that came to me from, but it came and it allowed me to read the stories behind numbers. And it was interesting that, I don't know, 20, 25 years later, I met a, an, a superb industrialist, a guy called Jack Stack, who wrote the book, The Great Game of Business, who told me that the way he thinks about numbers is that every single entry in a balance sheet or a ledger is representing an activity. And the sum of those activities are the character of the business. They're the sort of this idea that everything you do is based on a habit or a thought or a, a conviction. And there is not a single ledger entry in the accounts of a business that doesn't represent some habit or characteristic character decision that in total creates the character of the business. And I found that a very useful confirmation of my own thinking around numbers telling a story about people basically that's fascinating i mean i know for me i i didn't really like accounting and stuff and so i was kind of tried to muscle my way through it and it didn't have much meaning until i set up my own factory and all of a sudden like inventory became a significantly painful thing sometimes and it gave me but when i looked at the inventory on my balance sheet it gave me a picture of what we're doing and I started, you know, thinking more carefully about, and I, I didn't understand all of the 
accounting guidelines, but I tried to understand what is this telling me, you know, about the business. I think there's a great example of this that I teach in one of my classes, my valuation masterclass, is a company called Fastenal in America. And Fastenal makes, you know, they they basically buy fasteners and, you know, screws and bolts and yep. they buy tape and safety helmets and they sell this stuff to businesses. And what I do is I teach students about, you know, here's ratios and all that and stuff. And so naturally, when we say that inventory is high at a company, it tends to be a bad sign. You know, there's too much inventory. And then I show them this company, Fastenal, where inventory is five times higher than any of its competitors, which then immediately pulls them into bad. This is bad. But when they learn about what Fastenal is doing, which is they got rid of most of their outlets and they move their staff into the facilities of their clients and they set up bins and vending machines with all the parts that the client needs right there and so they take over the whole handling of those companies inventory so that a company then can go to literally a vending machine or a bin and when they pull that piece of inventory that thing that's got to be used in the manufacturing process out it's only a very tiny amount of time that they actually own it. In other words, Fastenal owns it up until that moment in the customer's factory. And then, then I show them, okay, the typical company in Fastenal's place is making about a 30% gross margin. Fastenal is making a 50% gross margin. And so that's a great one to kind of understand the story of how, oh, wait a minute, the amount of inventory that we hold is a choice. And it could be a strategic choice. And Absolutely, I've, I've got a I've got a matching story for that for a German company that's been around for a hundred and thirteen years or one hundred and fifteen years now, and they they've never had a penny of bank debt in all the years they've been in business. They make industrial needles for textile industry, and they have around about a seventy percent market share globally. And the reason, and I've it was a private company, and in 2008 or nine, maybe beginning of 10, I got a visit from their CFO who had been sent to me by their chairman, who I knew, who said, talk to Wilkinson about it because he might be able to give us some advice on an issue, and which was that they were thinking about taking on some debt for an acquisition. This is 2009-10, global financial crisis, crash, and we don't know how to do it. So I said, okay, well, come along, we'll sit down, have a chat, bring me your financials. Looked at the financials. It was sort of all equity, apart from the working capital, it was all mm -hmm. equity, accumulated profits, and an enormous position in inventory, enormous. I mean, something mm -hmm. like 40% of the entire balance sheet was inventory, and the rest was machinery and plant, plant equipment you know, and cash. Huge. And I looked at this and sort of so, whoa, what's this? And he said, Ah, this is very interesting. This is a, a fundamental part of who we are. And I said, Well, why? He said, Because we've, as a family, if we've lived through 12 recessions and we've understood how recessions work. Mm. And recessions work in that everybody is stripping down inventory playing down cash that they're, they're in order to survive a downturn you're stripping down working capital to its absolute minimum you're gutting the business and the longer the, the recession takes the more you're sort of burning the furniture to keep the keep the house on the wall mm. and what we have found he said is that as we come out of a recession and people are rebuilding we accumulate market share as a quasi monopolist for about eight to 12 months, depending on how deep the recession has been, because banks are slow in accepting that the turn has come. People's credit has been impaired. They don't have the inventory and we can deliver. So we, we don't know when, when recessions are coming, but we do know that they come regularly. And when they come, we know we have to survive them. And we need to have the fullest stocks to be able to deliver the customers who weren't working with us before the recession 
And once we've got them, we keep them. And that's how they've accumulated something like a 70% global market share of their business. By having the inventory strategically ready for 12 months mm. to give them a monopoly on delivery at that time. It's fascinating. Well, and I guess they also that's have the, the family's conviction. Yeah. They also Sorry. have the capacity to give credit terms too to the new customers that are potentially struggling Absolutely. as they come out. And so, so, so they, they are accel they are accelerators, and they, they said, and we all know this. The most dangerous time for businesses is not the recession itself; it's coming out of it, mm. because that's when, when liquidity is constrained, when working capital requirements are at their most aggressive, mm. but where you have the least capacity to deal with them. And yeah. so, what was your advice? Understanding that, as far as debt was concerned with them, I'm sorry. They came. They didn't to you. do it. They didn't. They didn't do it. Yeah. No, they didn't do it. They thought it's too complicated, and they decided that there were cheaper and less risky ways of doing what strategically in the market what they thought they were going to be doing with the um, the competitor that they were going to and take over. You, you mentioned something about like DNA or the the way that they are, and I guess one of the lessons I take from that story is too that. If it was any other type of kind of financial person, they probably would have said, yeah, yeah, bring on debt. Why not? Come on, here's your opportunity, you know, and you've got a good balance sheet and here's your chance. But with, you know, with a deeper understanding, I think the advice, I was just thinking the whole time, like, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. Be true to what you are. And, you know, it just, it makes much more sense, you know. Well, the fundamental difference between a business that thinks like that and the normal business that perhaps doesn't, or if you take it to extreme private equity, is that the family business or the business that's set up for longevity has one primary goal, and that is survival <laughs> and not growth. Growth is not the goal. Survival is the goal. And if you happen to grow while surviving, well, that's life. That's how life works. Life seeks growth, but it primarily seeks survival. Mm. And if survival is your primary objective, you do things differently. You do not change your values with the cycle. You see the cycle as being something that you need to get through in its entirety. Mm. Mm. Optimize for survival. Yep. I have a factory here in Thailand with, we had about a hundred employees. We're roasting coffee. We've been existing since 1995. My best friend who you could say is like my brother runs the business. He and I each own about, you know, about half of the business. We have a couple of other shareholders, but generally you could say about half and our families also, you know, own a little bit, but the, thing is when the COVID time came, we were actually not in a great position just prior to COVID. We had been expanding and our margin was down a bit and we were vulnerable. And then in Thailand, which depends, we're supplying hotels that are supplying, you know, that are providing coffee to tourists. We go from mm -hmm. 40 million tourists to 3 million tourists in 2020. Almost all of our customers were shut down coffee shops that we also supply are shut down and offices, which is our other third channel of our business, were shut down. And we weren't, we wanted to go online and, you know, all that and do the retail, but it wasn't in our DNA. And we realized we just can't, we just didn't feel like we could pivot to that with the resources that we had. So our worst months, our revenue was down 80% from the normal time prior to the 2020 COVID time. And it was all about survival for a couple of years. And we needed more cash coming in that we had to figure out how we extract that from the business and how we bring that in if we need to from others without losing control of the company because it is to us like a family business. But now we just had our regular weekly meeting this morning going through the financials and yeah, you know, the recovery is slow, you know. I mean, it's actually pretty big. If you compare first quarter last year to first quarter this year, you know, we're up probably 30% 30, 30 or so for revenue. 
And if you look at the first quarter of this year compared to second quarter of this year, it's kind of flat. So it's like, it's trying to get back up. But when you were speaking, it you reminded me of that you're burning the furniture in the house. Like everything that can go has got to go. Everything that can be cut must be cut, which then also explains why the recovery out of a recession can be a fantastic time to make a lot of money because companies are either dead or forced to cut to the bone. And then the operating leverage that's there as it's recovering, you know, so you made me think of that story. I know that story very well, and it's been painful, you know, (laughs) so we've survived. We've optimized for, you know, survival. So that's, that's fascinating. Let me ask you, just tell us a little bit about what you're doing as far as the newsletter and, you know, the other stuff that you're doing just so that the audience knows also where, where where can they get more? It, it sort of ties into to the, the main focus of our conversation, which is worst investment ever. I, I got into restructuring in 2001, two, and I've always been interested in, in the small business market, small, medium-sized businesses. So we're looking at you know, up to 250 employees and up to, I don't know, 50 to 100 million in revenue, mostly around the sort of 15 to 30 is the sort of sweet spot. And I moved to Ireland from Germany. I spent 30 years of my life, 28 altogether in, in Germany. So the sort of bulk of my time was away from the UK. Mm. I, I made a deliberate strategic decision that was, well, it was half strategic because I felt that Germany was moving into a uncomfortable place and wasn't wasn't going to be a place that I wanted to be economically. But even more importantly, I was getting really homesick for my language. I wanted to go back to an English-speaking country. I didn't want to go back to the UK. I came to Ireland. And I was still involved in a number of businesses as an investor in Germany. So I needed to be close enough to be able to fly back, which Mm. I did. And then COVID came. In fact, I'd literally just got back from the US where I'd been speaking at a conference literally the week that everything shut down. Mm. And I think COVID changed the world for a lot of people, but it sort of gave us time to think. And I've one of the reasons for going back to the English-speaking part of the world was because I, I wanted to reconnect to my writing. And I'd written a lot as a younger man and a boy. I'd constantly writing. And it as I sort of got into business and my career in finance, I'd sort of stopped doing that. I, on reflection, looking back, I used to write, it expressed itself through memos and writing letters to my investors and partners. And I, that's how it expressed itself when I look back on it. But I, I wanted to be very specific about writing. And so COVID stripped those people who wanted to write of any excuse not to. <laughs> <laughs> And at the same time, I I was very keen to just stop traveling back to Germany and so to get rid of the last investments that I have in, in what I would call real businesses mm. rather than portfolio investments. And I did that, started writing, no idea really what I was doing other than just committing to a schedule of publishing something every week. And the first ones were awful. And as I found my voice that became such an integral part of my week. It became my favorite part of the week, the Fridays, the Friday morning that I would sit down and just write and then publish. That was, I started looking forward to that more than almost anything else that showed me that I was on the right track for something. And I just had no, no expectations of anybody reading it, had no expectations of any feedback. Of course, it was wonderful started getting it, but the move to Substack, and I was publishing on MailChimp because I didn't know any better. And I think the people had set up my website and hooked it to MailChimp. I didn't even know what that was. And I started publishing on there. And I think I had a, an email list of about 12 people. And that's basically how it started. And I found that to be an extraordinarily powerful way of figuring out what I was thinking. 
And as I say, I really didn't care whether anybody was reading it or not, but people started to. And when you ask me what I'm doing, so the, the writing is just, it's it's not, it's a bit more than a hobby and not quite a business. It's sort of, I'm trying to I know professionalize it. It's something like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, sort of, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's in its teenage years at the moment and it keeps me, it keeps me occupied. It keeps my brain sharp. Uh, and I like it. I mean, I just wouldn't, I couldn't miss it. Yeah. But as I was divesting my businesses, I mean, I've, one of the things that I've, I've always wanted to be is a great owner. I'm a crap manager. I couldn't manage my way out of a wet paper bag. I really couldn't. And I, I, I don't like it. I can't do it. But I'm a really good owner to a good manager. Mm. I'm a good sparring partner. I'm a good chairman. I'm a good owner because I, I've spent my life, my adult life, particularly since my worst investment ever, thinking deeply about what it means to be an owner. What's the responsibility of an owner? What's, the, what's their job? How do, you, how do you create a safe, how do you hold a safe space for, for the value creation process as a business owner? Because I, I, I recognized, and I think it was one of the most freeing moments of my life when an entrepreneur who I admired deeply, a gentleman called Norm Brodsky, who uh, is an author himself, sold his business in New York. He's a New York Jewish lawyer. He turned 80 this year. I, I have the enormous admiration for him. And he he said, the day that I realized that I wasn't a manager and that I should just stop managing because it was getting, I was getting angry and I was shouting. I was a shouty manager because effectively I wasn't any good at it. But the moment that I realized that, and that I had to do something different as an entrepreneur was the most freeing moment of my life. And that conversation gave me permission to admit that I wasn't one either. Mm. And that didn't mean that I had nothing to give, quite the contrary. It meant that I should just stop doing it, just stop even pretending that I could. You know, I have enough trouble running a secretary. That's, that's about the maximum of my ability. I have a a very good bookkeeper, have operations, and a very good assistant. And that's all I need to run my world. Because as an owner, you don't need much infrastructure. And I've always been deeply influenced by Buffett and his model and his thinking and what he has done, deeply influenced by, mm. by it. And it is, it is nothing short of extraordinary to see how he has boiled down the essence of ownership to two or three things that ownership requires the owner to do and to, as he puts it, delegate to the point of abdication, absolutely everything else. And I've learned a great deal from that and attempted to apply it in my, in my own life. And everywhere where I've tempted to manage, it's just been dreadful because I can't and I shouldn't. <laughs> that's not what God put. Me, that's not what God put me on earth for. Which is a good um, lesson. Good lesson for all of and, us. If you have the, have an area that's just not working, you know, you don't have to keep pounding on it. Yeah, you know. Do, have you ever seen the um, the wonderful Bob Newhart? Do you, do you know Bob Newhart? You look a little bit like Bob Newhart. Right? Yes, thank you. <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs> that's uh, the Bob Newhart um, show. He has he has the he has the one sketch of the. Where he's a psychologist or a psychotherapist. Have you seen that? I where can't the woman remember. Comes in Go ahead. And, and the woman comes in and, and he says, it'll take five minutes and it costs $5. And that's all you need. It's a dollar a minute. And even if it does, takes less, you'll be cured. But I keep the $5. And she looks at him and says, really? He said, yes, it works. So he puts the $5. She puts the, pays the $5. And he says, right, what's your problem? And she says, you know, she has this terrible fear of small spaces and and she can't go out at night and she can't go anywhere out of her house and it's taken her enormous effort just to come here and, and she sort of describes this agoraphobia and and he looks at her and he said okay get a pen tell you advice and then she gets out of pencils you don't need pencils very simple he just said stop it just stop it and she said what that's it he said stop it <laughs> stop and so whenever i get into 
this idea that I ought to be possibly managing something and then I take Bob Newhart, Bob Newhart's advice and just stop just it. Stop it. Stop. Just yeah. don't do it. Pretty simple. Yeah. Uh, so into the, as I was sort of getting out of my the investments in Germany and to winding that down completely, I nature abhors a vacuum. So I had no ownership role mm. directly for an operating business. Nature abhors a vacuum, as I say. And I, within literally a week, I got a call from a friend in the States who said, I need your advice. Can you give me mm. some advice? Mm. I said, okay, of course. And they said, no, no, I want, I want you to, to come on and advise me properly in a program and I want to pay you for it. And I said, well, I don't, <laughs> don't know how that works. How do you do that? And they said, well, just make up a number. And I said, okay, well, I'll go and make up a number. And, and I said, well, why do you want me to, why do you want to pay for it? Because I want to know that you're committed. I want to know that you're going to do it rather than just giving me an hour and then I left by myself again. So, and that was very interesting. So I said, okay, I'll do it. I don't never saw myself as, a, as an advisor. And I realized very quickly that what I was doing was stepping into the same role. Mm. I was acting as a chairman to an entrepreneur, operational entrepreneur and doing exactly what I would be doing if the role were a more formal one. Mm. And I loved that, absolutely loved it. And it was a great relationship with somebody that I, I admire greatly. And I have no idea how it sort of evolved, but over the COVID years, 20 and 21, as I couldn't go out and be doing any business, I found actually I quite like sitting at home with my books and writing and doing this advisory work, acting as a thinking partner and a supporter strategic thinker advisor to people running businesses at a level that i understood so they tended not to be very small businesses but sort of medium-sized businesses that i was very soon running a what i suppose would be called an advisory business without actually wanting to do it and figuring out how that works and that's a role that i enjoy enormously and i've learned to transform my previous experience into something really valuable for them. And I enjoy it enormously. Interesting, you know, I'm thinking about the way I think about things. I'm formulaic, I'm logical, I'm structured, I'm all of that. So my my natural feeling in that type of situation is that, oh, okay, how do I come up with a system, a format or something like that? Whereas when I listen to you talk, I, you know, think that you're you're coming at it from a very different perspective where you're not under the shackles of linear thinking that, you know, I'm just curious. Quite like, the opposite. Yeah. Tell me more about Quite that. Quite the opposite. I'm, because I'm I'm an Enneagram seven, if that means anything to you. And I have a very strong one-on-one -on -one focus. So Enneagram is a typology system. It's a dynamic typology system, which roots in in ancient Christian thinking, even before that, actually, Desert Fathers were looking at ways of figuring out whether there were, whether human beings could be classified by certain types or appetites or mm. ways of seeing the world. I'm not going to bore you with the details because that's not the purpose of our conversation. Yeah. But I, the sevens are, sevens are very future thinking. Mm. We, we we think a lot about the future. What we're doing is escaping the pain and the boredom of reality. So we <laughs> when when things get boring for us, or when we're or uncomfortable, our escape strategy is to fantasize or to think about the future or to do something else, just something that's better and more fun. Because we're terrified of being stuck into routines and systems and because life would be just so uninteresting if that we were to do that. So anyway, <laughs> and one of and the and there's a typology if you break it down even further, there are people who have a very high self-preservation motivation, people who are very social and people who have what's called a sexual or one-on-one -on -one requirement and that's mm -hmm. me i'm very very focused on individual conversations and empathizing with the person sitting opposite me mm -hmm. and and my sense my how i define what i do is 
I bring slowness to people whose lives are full of speed. I do the reading they can't. I read for them. I I see myself as as using my slowness, you know, the slowness that I've built into my life as an asset for people who don't have it. Mm. So when or my my perspective, people who are on the ground floor fighting every day in their business, right. working with me allows them to escape to 40,000 feet and to look at things holistically and to bring in different perspectives without, and to look at without history. A, without a lot of effort because you're putting in the effort to kind of think it through. Then when they get together with you, it's like, let's go. <laughs> yeah, without any effort. Yeah. Without any without any effort on that part, and um, you know, and that's valuable because when they then go back down into their world, they don't go down to zero feet again. They stay at you know maybe a thousand, yeah. and then slowly sort of come back down again as, as life takes them. But that that ability to, if you like, delegate that to somebody who just thinks with them, which is the owner's role. The owner's role is to think strategically about the business. And in order to do that, a very engaged entrepreneur who is also running the business needs to treat that strategic time as preciously as they do any other leadership meeting or whatever else they do, they're doing. So booking that with me is, and having someone that they can go into that space with is an investment in their own strategic leadership and ownership function. Mm. Uh, because I spend most of my time thinking about that and history and economics and sort of the generalist perspective, which lateral thinkers like to do. I've, 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 that's just a small section of my library. And as I imagine this is with yours, I read eclectically mm. across as many different disciplines as possible because I'm constantly populating my mental model. And because, and I think this has, you know, I, I, I don't drink alcohol and I don't put any substances in my body because it keeps my brain sharp because I have a, an exceptionally good memory for stuff. Mm. I will be in a conversation and I will remember, oh, wait a second. I've got, I remember reading a story or piece of information in a book 10 years ago, and I can go and get it and use that information to populate a, an example or a story that I'm telling about. Mm. And I think that that's the value in it. So I don't have a program or a system. Yeah. I am very good at listening. I'm very good at, at empathizing with the position. And then I bring, you know, this sort of rag bag of treasure house of stuff that's in my library and in my head to bear in a way that makes sense for that individual. So in their language and in their metaphors and in, in the way that they think about the world. When I was thinking about my, in my coffee business, we set that up in 1995 and I was working as an analyst and a head of research and my best friend and, you know, business partner, he said, well, I'm going to run this and he's been running it now for nearly 30 years. So I'm a, you know, a significant owner, but I've never been an employee in the company. And we did have some opportunities where I could have done that when I was in between jobs or think about, you know, and we could have probably, you know, grown the business faster or in a different way, but it just never, I never really felt like, and, and we both kind of agreed that it's probably better for me to stay in the world of finance and make sure that we've got good relationships there. And because of that, one of our shareholders is the former former permanent secretary of ministry of finance. Not once he retired, you know, that he joined as a shareholder. And so we've gotten benefit from that. But what I was going to say is that it's a dance, you know, here I have my best friend, our whole lives are intertwined. You know, people say, you don't, don't do business with your friends, but we managed to survive it and he's running it. And I'm looking at the financials and also giving him feedback and support, you know, on a daily basis. And we talk and, but I'm not, I'm not there to put out the fire and he knows that and that basically leaves me as 
a sounding board, a discussion. But the thing I was thinking about as you were talking is that it's it's a dance because I may think I know what's the right thing, but once I start kind of pushing on that, if I get a lot of resistance from him, I always back off because I'm like, I, I don't see what's going on in the workaday world that he's facing. And it's more critical that we continue to have these good conversations that have given us the longevity of our relationship and our business than to try to, you know, say, this is the thing that really matters. And I think also when you add in the Thai, in Thailand, people just are not rewarded in any way for confrontation that he and I both become, you know, that you can't help but that rub off on you in Thailand that, you know, we're not going to go into a heavy confrontation on something. And I, I just thought about that as you were talking about the role of the owner and, and your relationship and stuff. So it, it's fascinating. And it's a, it's a really important issue, particularly in today's world where ownership is being replaced or ownership is being assumed by people who have no interest in anything other than extraction. You know, there, there are trillions of dollars of private equity money, the main focus of which is to keep the time of ownership as short as possible to maximize the extraction, because that's how the IRR function works. They're not um, optimizing for survival. They're not optimizing for survival at all. And once once you take that, once that becomes a, a feature of a system that is dependent on the quality of ownership in order to protect the rights of ownership and property rights, which are fundamental to the way our system works, it gets very dangerous. Because if owners are not doing their job, in the German constitution, the very shortest sentence in the German constitution is two words in Article 7, I think. Article 7.2 is Eigentum verpflichtet. And Eigentum verpflichtet means, and I can't even get it to two words in English, it means property brings with it responsibilities. But that's it. That's all they have to say about property. Mm. <laughs> they say that, that, that actually it's three articles. Number one is property exists. So we are recognizing that there is such thing as property and that it can be owned by individuals and it can be passed on through inheritance. Number two, mm. that it brings responsibilities with it. And number three, the state can take it away if it's, you know, it, it establishes eminent domain, basically. But that question of, of what, okay, what are the responsibilities of ownership? What does it... Is it a social good or is it, does ownership confer on the owner a responsibility for the thing owned, not just in the context of the of society, but for the thing owned? You've got to, if you own something, you've got a responsibility for it, to look after it. Mm. And that's an interesting, it's not something that is, is discussed much by constitutional scholars because it never gets to the there were very few cases that have ever made it up to the constitutional court to say, well, what does that actually mean? Because you know, and it's not something that you find at the heart of a of a suit. But for me, it's a fascinating question. It's yeah. a social question. You know, mm. Ownership brings with it responsibility for the thing owned. It, and it then you have to define what it is. Sorry? It reminds me of when I bought my 63 Lincoln here in beautiful Bangkok. I just was really enthralled with this car and I bought it and I was a steward of it for 10 years. And then there came a point of time where I just didn't want it anymore. I didn't need it. And an opportunity came where someone came along and said they valued it. And so I passed it on. And I think that my business partner, Dale, and I too look at our business now as we've gotten older and realize we are stewards of this idea that we created. And now how do we make it a more lasting thing? And that's, I think, where where we're feeling like, you know, what an awful situation it would be to leave a company that you built and watch it fall apart. Then what were you doing the whole time? <laughs> so yeah. Heartbreaking. Yeah. Heartbreaking. And it's killed 
and I'm, th I'm thinking very strongly of a gentleman called Arnold Weinstock, Lord Weinstock, who ran a business called General Electric Company in the UK, which had nothing to do with GE in America. Mm. And he was a very cautious businessman. He kept a public company, one of the largest in the UK. And he was renowned for having this huge cash hoard that he would accumulate and keep on his balance sheet, which gave him, you know, opportunities. He said it was a to call option on opportunities when mm. they come. And during the sort of go go years of the nineteen was it nineteen nineties? I think it was the nineteen nineties. Or maybe it was even nineteen eighty six, eighty seven, sort of in the mm in the post, what was it called, Big Bang phase in the city of London. He retired, and they brought in this guy called Lou Simpson, who was everything that Weinstock wasn't. He changed the name to Marconi. He had consultants come in and, and do a sort of complete makeover of the corporate identity. And within three years, the whole pile was gone. And I think it, it was the end of the 90s that all this happened. And in the crash of 2001, he just he was over leveraged. And the company just bust, basically. And Weinstock died a year later of a broken heart. Yeah, he was yeah. in his mid 80s. And he could he, he watched this one city superstar, you know, the city had wanted yeah. him, the banks had wanted him because he was going to do all these amazing things with his cash pile and, and reform the business. And he broke it. Mm. Took him three years. Took Arnold Weinstock forty years to build it up to one of the most powerful industrial conglomerates in the UK, and it took Simpson three years to break it. Incredible. Well, what a great intro to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and I I appreciate you taking the time to explain you know your own background and what you're doing and all that. And I found that fascinating. And now. It's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstance leading up to it and then tell us your story. Yeah, I will. And I'll keep it as brief as possible, given that we've not been brief so far. I have spent a long time thinking about how I was going to respond to your invitation. And I've decided that my worst investment was my best. It was certainly the one that generated the largest return, nine figures. I was coming, I started my own little investment business in 1998. I wanted to run my own balance sheet, didn't have a lot of capital, but enough to start. And I had a, a really good first couple of years for the simple reason that as a value investor, I had no interest in any of the sort of new economy stocks that could see what was happening. Mm. I was, in fact, reading Edward Chancellor's book, Devil Take the Hindmost, in 1998, I think. And it was so apropos because you, know, you could see exactly what was happening. It was the railway, the railway boom of 1847 all over again. And the stocks that I was always in, I was in public markets because I couldn't afford anything else. And there were some really interesting, you know, one, two times earning value plays available in the old economy in Germany. They were mind-bogglingly good investments, and everybody else was looking in the old direction. And, and so I did quite well. The capital increased substantially over the next years into the crash. And I met a gentleman who invited me onto a board of a company that he was thinking of setting up. To, he was an American working for one of the more famous German companies that had profited enormously from the new economy boom, publishing company, and he had been in charge of managing what was a promiscuously bought portfolio of new economy businesses. And he sort of, we shared the same tax advisor, and he said to me at a meeting once, these are all going to hand in a handbasket. They're paying ridiculous prices for them, but there's value in there. So when it goes down, I want to be in a position to pick up some assets cheaply. Would you be interested in joining my board? And I said, yeah, of course. Sounds like value investing, intelligent 
sort of Cuban approach, a T, a, a Tobin approach to uh, to asset valuation. And he invited two others. He invited a lawyer, senior partner of a law firm, and a guy who was had deep experience in restructuring and had you know made a fortune himself. So there were three of us, and he invited us to a board meeting, sort of initial board meeting to to get to know each other at this lawyer's office. And there were three of us sitting there one summer afternoon, summer lunchtime, and it was meeting was set for 12, and we were going to have sandwiches and a chat and get to know each other. And he didn't come. And I have never seen him since. <laughs> that was so there were three of us were sitting there. The lawyer had to go off to do some lawyering, and the the restructuring guy and I sat there. And we found each other interesting. He found my story interesting. I found him fascinating. And we promised to keep in touch and we did and he was looking he'd left a partnership and was looking to to do what he'd been doing beforehand but at a larger scale with other people's money that was sort of basically his premise he was reorienting himself he made a great deal of money with his previous partnership and now he wanted to see whether he could do it on a bigger stage and that's how our partnership started. And he, I think what he wanted from me or saw in me was a sort of capital markets intelligence and a very good network. And what I saw in him was an absolutely focused moneymaker and restructuring genius, mm-hmm. which he undoubtedly was. So he had this, he had a, a requirement. He said, I don't like this private equity model nonsense. It's an 80 20, because if any if I'm gonna do it, I want 80 and they can have 20. I don't know how much money I'm gonna need. I don't even know if I'm gonna need any money. And but I don't want and I don't want to be working for people. I'm I'm a business owner, I'm an entrepreneur, I don't work for people. They can invest with me, but so let's figure out how to square that circle. And the idea we came up with, and I'm not quite sure whether he came up with it or I came up with it, but we came up with the idea of buying a shell company, so an empty stock exchange listed quoted company, but empty, mm-hmm. buying as much mm-hmm. of that as we could, 90%, 95%, whatever, whatever was available. Because my thinking was, if you are right that we are coming into a time when there is, when you can buy assets cheaply, and if you can generate the sort of returns that you think you can return, then the share price should reflect that fairly quickly. And then you can determine through rights issues or share issues how much money you take in and how much control you give up. And so mm. we did it. We bought, we found one. We bought, I don't know, 88% of it. And then I picked up a few more shares. Literally, I literally went to a to a hotel in this little village. It was a it was a company that had been formed for a spa in a it was a time in Germany when all these spas went public, complete wheeze. <laughs> and you know, the mayor owned some and the town council owned some and the local bank owned some. So I went put an advertisement in the newspaper, said I'm gonna be in town for two days. If anybody's got share certificates they want to get rid of, it was 50 cents per share. I'll pay anywhere between 50 cents and a euro. I'll be in the hotel lobby, just come and and I'll take them off your hands. And literally within an hour after breakfast, the mayor and the head of the local savings bank came in and said, were you the guy looking for them? And they brought a box and they wanted to know what we were going to do. Anyway, I ended up taking another three or 4% back home. So we owned 90% between us. And the deal was that he would take... 60 and I would take 40 because he was going to do all the work and I was just going to sit back and be his chairman and help with thinking and investors and networks. And and it was, this was 2002 and it was phenomenally successful. And we took that share price from 50 cents, which is what we paid to at the peak, 400 euros. So you can imagine (laughs) it was it turned into one of, I mean, it was it was worth, I don't know, 1.2 billion at the end, five, six years later. And you can imagine what that phase was like. I mean, we had, you know, we we were buying companies hand over fist. We, we, we had a super, you know, built a big company up and he was 
really aggressive, mm. really aggressive. Brilliant. There's no doubt. He was brilliant. Too clever for me because I was not ready for that, that sort of success. And the reason that it was my worst investment as well as being my best investment is because I had no system for dealing with the wealth that that created. I've always felt like a fraud in the investment business anyway, because <laughs> you know I studied medieval German and I was a poet and not, and I just happened to take this job at Merrill Lynch because it was the summer of 1987 and, and they were looking, the Americans were all over Europe and, and trying to sort of capitalize on Big Bang and expanding and saw you know, Europe as an extension of the UK, which was nonsense. And they were basically hiring anybody with a who could tie a tie and had a pair of hands and was reasonably well spoken and so and could speak a bit of German. So and I fitted that bill and it paid, you know, it paid and it paid well. Mm. And so I was sort of caught in this in this world of finance, which I thought I was I come from a business family and doing well financially is a sort of value. At least I thought it was. That was what was communicated. So I wanted to be, ex we do things to gain approval from our fathers and parents and infrastructure. So, you know, I was doing what I thought would gain approval. And because it was intellectually challenging for me to sort of get my head around this finance stuff, I found that an intellectual challenge, and I was sort of stuck with it. And I never really found a way out. So when this happened in my late 30s, early, you know, beginning 40, I think I was just turning 40 when it happened. Yeah, it must have been because it was I'm, I was 40 in 2003. So I must have been, I don't know, 38 when it happened. And I was still... 38 is a time for Richard Raw talks about the true self and the false self and and that we need to go particularly as men we need to go we go through this crisis of the false self when all the things that were working beforehand suddenly stop working and you have to move through that to experience maturity of in the on the other half and men who don't tend to be very depressed after their mid 40s and even you know we see it in suicide statistics that men between the, the highest incidence of suicide in the Western world, at least, is between sort of 48 and 58, when men are coming on the other side of this collapse of their false identity mm. and moving into a more mature identity. And this, this great success happened to me at a time when I really I was starting to feel the limits of what I call the false self or what Richard Raw calls the false self. And it just, ex it, it gave me a false sense of security. The way that I was and the things that I was doing were obviously successful because we were obviously brilliant. And I was obviously brilliant because that's how, because look, and it led to some disastrous decisions on my part, disastrous. And I wasn't paying attention. I had no system for keeping the money. I was probably unbearably arrogant because look at me, you know, did all the things that 40 year olds do when they have too much money dumped on them. And, and I let other people take it off me. You know, I invested in all sorts of things. I had partners in a different business at the time. Again, sort of investment banker types because I had an inferiority complex that I wasn't really an investment banker and they knew more than I did. And they loaded me up with so much risk going into 2007 that I had, and I never, I've never used debt ever, mm. but in, in aspects of my little empire, there was a lot of it because they have this genius idea of setting up a warehouse for mezzanine financing for. And it just blew up. 2007, it blew up. All those partners left, you know, quicker than shit through a goose. Mm. And I was left with with a huge non-recourse, at least at least that, but a wealth-destroying amount of debt 
in a market which was hell-bent on destroying every last penny of equity in the structure. And so I lost not only it and all the money that I'd made beforehand, I also had at that point a very aggressive tax investigation, which was awful for somebody who's sort of always taken care of doing things you know, properly. If you're chairman of a big company and you know very prominent, and and it was doing all sorts of deals, you know, there was created a lot of wealth. It was on the radar. They weren't sort of much after me as after partners, but you know they took what they could get. And that lasted for nine years. And that, in the very, in a very visceral sense, almost killed me. The shame that I felt from my own immaturity that was sort of handed to me on a silver platter, the shame and the grief that took. I'm going to say almost a decade mm. to work through because I, from being you know, extremely comfortable, I was suddenly in a situation where my family was at risk. And I mean, thought of that as a consequence. And the grief, the grief was this, you grieve for wealth that's lost. Mm. You grieve for it. It's, Literally, it takes on its own persona in your, in the drama of your life, and you you weep for it, and you 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 want to get it back, and you can't. And it's a bit like Greek tragedy, you know, the Euripides looking back, or Circe looking back, and and being turned to stone, and just for that, you want to reconstruct it and go back and say, where did I go wrong? At what point should I have done? something differently and why didn't I do and you spend so long stirring in your own shit that it just drives you you and everybody else mad and you're never um, going to get it back you know that's and you never it. get it back George Soros says money has no memory it doesn't it has it has no memory it doesn't you had it you blew it you know it was your um, chance it was that was your chance can you remember the specific moment when you were finally free of it I can I can. And as I say, it almost killed me because I couldn't get, if you have a, um, you have a vivid imagination, as I think I do, and a good vocabulary, you can create a story in your head that for all that you can use language positively, you can also use it to catastrophize. And my confidence in myself, in my ability to make rational decisions, was shattered. It was absolutely shattered. And I'd had one I had one thing that I hung on to, which was in the at the tail end of the of the catastrophe that was the great financial crisis, you know, when things were really bad for me and I knew that the next couple of years were going to be very hard. Mm. I was I was thinking through with a, another partner what was going to happen What's the logical consequence of what was happening in Germany at the time? And I said to the partner, it was a real estate invest, they had a small real estate investment partnership. And I um, said to him that residential real estate, they were experts in. And I said, the Germans have just had two, two experiences in 2001 and now in 2008 of disastrous stock exchange activity and, and volatility. They hate it. Lost money in the new market. They've lost money in the great financial crash. They hate it. Real, domestic residential real estate. But the governments are now pumping money into the economy. Central banks are now creating money mm. in a way that Germans recognize as being potentially disastrous from their history. They absolutely, they, they're monetizing government debt is, mm. is used to be an anathema. I don't think it is anymore, but it used to be. So that's the second question. So, so they'll be looking at inflation. So they don't like paper and they hate inflation. Where are they going to put their money? And the answer was very simple. 
they're going to put it in bricks and mortar. And the asset class that they were most comfortable with was residential, existing, built residential properties. And I said to him, and who's going to be the big loser? The big loser are going to be the wealth managers. The wealth managers are going to see a huge influx. So not only have they lost money now twice in a, in a decade, substantially, you know, 30 40% drawdowns, but as the German sort of wealthy individual moves to inflation hedge in property, you will see money disappearing out of the wealth market, because where else is it going to go from? Mm. They're, they're mm. going to take it away from the people who are creating stock. And and I said to him, okay, we need to set up a real estate fund that invests exclusively in residential property, not new property, but existing properties. Mm. And we looked in the market and there wasn't one. There wasn't one. There wasn't one that exclusively focused on German. And so we set it up. And it was phenomenally successful. For the past 15 years, that has been the single most successful German property fund <laughs> in the market. 500 million in assets. And that gave me the confidence to know that my thinking was still clear. I could still think clearly. Mm. And you asked me the question, when did it finish? I don't think it finished until 2018. didn't think I came through that until 2018. When I was... I think I was functionally depressed at the time. I was told that later. Very, very sad, mourning, unhappy, still ashamed. And I went to the island of Iona with my wife for a trip, which is a place where St. Columba built his abbey in the northern, in the Hebrides, just off Scotland, north of Ireland. And I used to sing as a young boy, as a mm. chorister, and I've always sung... I sang as a young man and I was, was up to university time. And then I stopped. I didn't sing anymore. And we went to a place called Fingal's Cave, which is a, a little island. And there's this, this cavern in the rocks. And it looks like a cathedral. And I thought I was alone with my wife there. And I said, oh, it would be fun to test the acoustics. acoustics. Of this place. You can imagine it sort of like a, there was water in it and there was like this great cavernous rock formation, like a cave, but it was huge dome thing. And I could help from when we were talking how resonant it was. And Britta said, well, why don't you just sing something? Then I said, okay, I will, to make sure there's nobody listening. And I just opened up and sang. And I have a good baritone or tenor voice, mm. actually. But it wasn't practice. And we were with a small group from, from my children's boarding school. and and the vicar who was with us or the chaplain of the school who was with us, he was around the corner. He was listening to me singing in the, in Fingal's cave. And that afternoon we were due to have a little church service in the Abbey of Iona, which is an absolutely beautiful mm. medieval. It's a very sacred place. Right. And we sort of booked it for the afternoon and, and we could, we were having a one hour service and he came to me and said, would you sing? I just heard you. Would you sing something? at the service, and there were about, I don't know, 25, 30 of us. And I said, yes, as long as I can choose what it is. And he said, yeah, go ahead, just choose. And there is a, a hymn by um, Tese, which is called, Oh Lord, Hear My Prayer, which is a beautiful incantation. And I remember going into the church and saying, you know, to my maker, if you never let me sing again, just let this one be a good one. And it was an incredibly powerful moment for me. Incredible, just my voice in this sacred building. And I gave it everything I got. And that's when I came out, it was like a cleansing. Something had lifted off me. And if I had to put a point as to when the recovery started, it was then. That's amazing. And... I was just thinking as you were describing it, like how you would stop from, I mean, in my case, I'm sure I would have broken down as I was trying to sing that because, I mean, I was just in a spinning class, you know, riding a bicycle and they turn off the lights at the end of it. And the lady said, you know, slow down, whatever you're fighting out there, you know, just you're good enough, just do your best, you know, and, and I was like, 
sobbing as I was listening. It's like, I, I don't know how you made it through that without, you know, breaking down. Because the singing was the thing that it was what was being taken out of me. Mm. So it had to come out. It, it, the singing was the process. Right. It, and it, that needed to be completed before. And it was, it drained me completely. Yeah, I, mean, I was yeah. not capable of speaking for another yeah. six hours afterwards. And I, I definitely didn't want to leave the island. I remember thinking, I thinking, feeling very, very vulnerable as we left the island on the little ferry over to the Isle of Mull and then sort of back off home again through Scotland. But that was the, that was the point. That was when it started. You're free. Yeah. You're free. It was the beginning of freedom. <laughs> it was the beginning of, I don't know how to put this, it was, it was the revelation of grace. Yeah. Mm. Very powerful. Yeah. For me, anyway, it was. So to wrap all this up, maybe you can just try to bring it all together into kind of this whole experience that you've talked about what would be the one or two lessons that you've taken away from all that? And you've explained a lot of, you know, great stuff. Yeah. Everything depends on you. Being successful in business, being good at investing, being a good owner is 100% dependent on you as the owner, you have to be ready. You have to be deserving of wealth. You have to be in a position of giving in order to receive. It's all about you. And working on you is the key to having whatever it is that you want to have. There's this little meme that says, be, do, have. So you've got to be the owner in order to do the things that owners do and thereby to have the things that owners have if they're successful. You can't do it the other round. You can't, you can't have the things and then do and then hope to be. You've got to be first. So it's all about whatever you experience is the result of your own level of self-reflection, self-development, and maturity as an individual. Everything, everything feeds back from that, everything. And so taking responsibility for that first is the key to accepting the results that come. And if the results are awful, then you've got to start with you and mm. figuring out what it is that you have to do differently in order to get a different outcome. And that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and protect our well fellow risk takers. Let's celebrate that today we added one more person to our mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. What a great time. What a great story. This is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stott saying, I'll see you on the upside.